lived in Cincinnati, Ohio, on and off for the past 16 years, mostly on. I had gone through Cincinnati multiple times when I was younger, since I-75, a freeway that goes from northern Michigan to southern Florida, runs through my hometown of Detroit, and passes through several states east of the Mississippi. But the first time I actually visited the city of Cincinnati was when I was in college. Well, at The Ohio State University, sorry, I went to OSU, so I kind of have to say it that way. I was a part of the Committee for Equal Opportunity in Education, a student organization which was affiliated with the far-left social justice group BAM, serving as member and webmaster of our group. CEOE was formed to support affirmative action policies and support the University of Michigan in the Grutter versus Bollinger and Gratz versus Bollinger affirmative action cases. At the time, the cases were being heard by the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, which is in Cincinnati. BAM organized a protest march to support Michigan while the case was at the Sixth Circuit. So our group rode the hour 45 down from Columbus to Cincinnati in a charter bus, got dropped off at the University of Cincinnati, and joined the protest march from UC to the courthouse downtown, which is something like two or three miles. The route went down Vine Street, which is a straight shot from UC to downtown, and it takes you through Over the Rhine, a neighborhood just north of downtown. Over the Rhine is an old neighborhood in Cincinnati that was a German enclave in the late 1800s and early 1900s prior to the World Wars. That's how it got its name. Much of the architecture in the area is from that period, so there's a lot of row houses and storefronts built in the 1800s. Now, at this time, Over the Rhine was very run down with abandoned buildings, closed businesses, and lots of litter. I thought it strange because unlike poor neighborhoods in Detroit, the lumber used to board up many of the abandoned buildings on Cincinnati's Vine Street were painted as if they were trying to make these buildings look less abandoned. So a board over a door was painted like it was a door and a board over a window was painted like it was a window. This was in 2002, just a year after the 2001 Cincinnati riots. The Cincinnati riots erupted in April 2001 after the Timothy Thomas case. Timothy Thomas was a 19-year-old young man who was shot in the back and killed by police during a pursuit in Over the Rhine in an alley near 13th and Republic in the early morning hours of April 7th. He was wanted for several nonviolent misdemeanors, most of which were traffic violations, and he was unarmed when he was shot. The police officer who murdered Thomas was never charged. This was the straw that broke the camel's back for the poor and predominantly black over the Rhine area, as the city had been plagued by several police killings of unarmed black men. Thomas was the 15th black man killed by police in the five years prior to the riots. During the same period, no white suspects were killed by Cincinnati police. In the wake of the shooting, several days of rioting occurred in and around the neighborhood, also spilling into downtown. This went on from April 9th through 13th until a citywide curfew placed into effect by then-Mayor Charlie Lucan ended the unrest. 
The riots caused several million dollars in property damage, close to 100 arrests, and a few injuries but no fatalities. At the time, it was the largest civil disturbance to occur since the 1992 Los Angeles riots, which took place as a result of the acquittal of officers who brutalized Rodney King at a traffic stop. As a result of the Cincinnati riots and a later boycott of downtown businesses, a collaborative agreement was put in place to foster a more positive relationship between the Cincinnati police and the community, which has been a model for the improvement of police-community relations in other cities across the country. In the 18 years since the Timothy Thomas shooting in the Cincinnati riots, Over the Rhine has undergone a great deal of change. Many of the dilapidated and abandoned buildings have been renovated, becoming trendy stores, offices, restaurants, and condos, and crime has decreased significantly in the area. Because of this, many upper-middle-class singles and families, mostly Caucasian, have moved into the neighborhood. The alley where Timothy Thomas was killed is now gated and mostly painted over, and it borders expensive condos. Nearby, Washington Park is now a destination for families from around the area to attend community events like concerts and yoga, drink a nice cold beer, lounge around using the free Wi-Fi compliments of the local phone company, and take their kids to run around in the splash pad to keep cool on blazing summer days. In the decade and a half I've lived in Cincinnati, I've seen so many changes in Over the Rhine, now rebranded OTR, and the surrounding neighborhoods. But in Cincinnati, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You only need to walk over a block here or a couple blocks there to see some of the despair of the old Over the Rhine. The boarded up buildings, rundown party stores, grimy sidewalks, people aimlessly wandering, sex workers walking the streets. Those areas are shrinking little by little each year to be overtaken by urban renewal. But these areas are still there. To be fair, in the neighborhood, some of the rehab housing stock is being used for Section 8 housing. If you're from outside the U.S., or from the states but unfamiliar with public assistance programs, Section 8 refers to private housing open to people who receive housing assistance from the government. These are generally people who are in poverty. People who receive Section 8 assistance pay a reduced rate out of pocket to their landlords, and the government makes up the rest. So alongside these expensive condos with gated courtyards and parking lots, There are newly renovated apartment buildings being rented out to low-income residents, mostly black. There are some major changes, and many would say these are good changes. But the question is, are those who live through the lean times receiving the benefit of these changes? That's a question that comes up a lot when neighborhoods change. Some call it revitalization. Others call it gentrification. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. A trip to my hometown of Detroit, Michigan a few months ago inspired me to want to talk about urban renewal and gentrification. The idea of taking urban areas, 
mostly lived in by racial and ethnic minorities, and rehabilitating them in some way, whether it's restoring the existing buildings and repurposing them, or raising buildings in order to create something new. I grew up in a Midwestern city, and I've lived in another Midwestern city for a decade and a half, so I've seen what urban renewal looks like. And to be honest, I have mixed feelings about it. In the next two episodes, you'll get a better idea as to why I feel that way, and hopefully gain some knowledge along the way. What happens when a city decides that they want to improve poor urban neighborhoods where mostly racial or ethnic minorities live? Now, before I get into urban renewal, I do want to make a quick aside. While there is a strong correlation in the U.S. between economic class and race, and the neighborhoods that are typically targeted by urban renewal plans are poor and disproportionately people of color, Not all people of color, including Black Americans and Latino Americans, live in poor, depressed, high-crime communities. For example, while Donald Trump has had nothing but negative to say about Baltimore, Maryland, the area of Maryland between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., called the Baltimore-Washington Corridor, is home to some of the wealthiest Black communities in the United States. As a matter of fact, half of the top 10 wealthiest Black communities are in the state of Maryland. Let's talk about urban renewal. In particular, the practice of bringing in a plethora of public and private resources to a neighborhood in order to modernize or improve it. We get what proponents call urban revitalization and what detractors call gentrification. These terms have different connotations. PPP Knowledge Lab an informational website run by the World Bank Group and several development banks, defines urban revitalization as, quote, a set of initiatives aimed at reorganizing an existing city structure, particularly in neighborhoods in decline due to economic or social reasons. Urban revitalization initiatives generally include improving features of the urban environment, such as the quality of pavement and the functionality of the sidewalks. Depending on the intended usage of the revitalized neighborhood, the projects can also address the need for improved community engagement and occupation of the public spaces, providing new entertainment facilities like parks and museums. In several initiatives, projects aim to prepare parts of the city to fulfill a desired economic function by adjusting the utilities network to specific requirements. End quote. According to the Brookings Institute, gentrification refers to, quote, the process by which higher income households displace significant numbers of low income residents of a neighborhood, thus changing the essential character and flavor of the neighborhood, end quote. They say that three conditions must be met for renewal to qualify as gentrification. Displacement of original residents, physical upgrading of most of the housing stock, and change in neighborhood character. So these are different definitions. Both are used to characterize redevelopment and rundown urban, usually minority neighborhoods, but are often used to describe the same event and speak to the political and social tensions involved in redeveloping these areas. What I'm going to focus on in this episode is how these poor, 
blighted urban neighborhoods came to exist in the first place. I think it's important to understand where this comes from before we talk about where we're at now and where things are going. The answer to this question, why these exist, is very complex. But the important takeaway is that these neighborhoods exist by design. The existence of these rundown, segregated neighborhoods is deliberate. The end of chattel slavery in the United States in 1865 did not mean that Black Americans were considered equal. Jim Crow segregation in public spaces and private spaces open to the public was enforced in the South both by government and by custom. In northern states, black and white were kept separate, primarily through housing discrimination. The federal government and private entities both worked in concert to keep neighborhoods separate by race. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Buchanan v. Worley in 1917 that local and state ordinances keeping black families out of white neighborhoods, and vice versa, were unconstitutional. But this didn't stop both public and private sectors from enforcing racial segregation in housing. The Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, was formed in 1934 as part of the New Deal with the purpose of insuring mortgages for homeowners in the wake of the bank failures during the Great Depression and in the process making homeownership more accessible to middle-class Americans. It was one of the factors that eventually led to increased suburbanization and urban sprawl. But, according to Richard Rothstein, historian and author of the book The Color of Law, the FHA also enforced racial segregation by refusing to insure loans in or near black neighborhoods, known as redlining, and choosing to subsidize construction of mass-produced, whites-only subdivisions that required that homes not be sold to black Americans. In 1948, Shelley v. Kramer made the enforcement of racially restrictive covenants, which is language in a home deed prohibiting the sale of the home to a different race, such as black Americans, illegal. But this did not stop the federal practice of redlining. Between 1945 and 1959, only 2% of FHA loans were made to black Americans. This had two key effects on people of color, particularly black Americans. This had the effect of isolating black people in specific urban areas while keeping them out of other urban areas and much of suburbia. This also, by and large, kept them renters. Despite the 2008 housing crisis and the resulting recession, land ownership is a key way of building and maintaining wealth. While in the short term, the costs of home ownership can be equal to or higher than renting, home ownership in the long run is usually less expensive. And more importantly, once the mortgage is paid off, you own the land and are only obligated to maintain the home and pay property taxes. Renting has the advantage of leaving you off the hook for most maintenance costs of property ownership. And you're not bound to the land. You can move anytime you want or need to. But no matter if you're paying for a year or 30 years, at the end of the day, you still don't have anything to show for it. Owning a home is also useful in terms of demonstrating creditworthiness, and in general, allows families more financial flexibility. 
So if you need a loan for other things, say for starting your own business, owning a home is extremely helpful. So a path to home ownership was a path forward in wealth building that was available for middle-class white families, but the door was pretty much shut for black Americans of similar means. This, on top of job discrimination and discrimination in other types of private lending, meant that black Americans found it incredibly more difficult to build wealth. And even if middle class were less able than comparable white families to improve their socioeconomic status and found it more difficult to pass along any wealth or status to their descendants. To this day, black families tend to have less wealth than white families, even if they have the same income. And this is a major reason why. Now, during the early to mid-1900s, racial segregation was enforced in other ways. Besides redlining, realtors and homeowners employed other methods to enforce segregation, such as lying to black buyers about a home's availability, as well as practices like steering and blockbusting. Steering refers to the practice of realtors guiding buyers towards certain neighborhoods based on race or ethnicity. Blockbusting was a tactic that relied on white homeowners' fears of black residents moving into their neighborhoods due to racist fears of crime and dropping home values. Realtors and developers would spread rumors that their neighborhood would be taken over by black people. This would lead white homeowners to sell their homes at below market prices. Then, the companies buying these homes would then sell to black people at above market prices. This had the effect of black people having to spend more of their capital to become a homeowner and added to the barriers for black home ownership in suburban communities. This was a way that the real estate industry was able to capitalize on racism for maximum profit. All of this was deliberate. This mix of factors have led to people of color, especially black Americans, with low comparable wealth to begin with, being relegated to population-dense, low-income neighborhoods that often lack well-maintained housing stock, resources, and a solid tax base. So this also means inferior schools and infrastructure. These areas were often called ghettos. A ghetto is an area of a city where a specific racial or ethnic group are relegated and are typically more impoverished than the other parts of the city. The term originally came from neighborhoods in European cities where Jewish people were forced to live, apart from other residents of the same cities. Ghettos were formed as far back as the 16th century, where a Jewish ghetto was created to segregate Jews in Venice, Italy. The term became more well-known due to ghettos created for Jews by Nazi Germany in the run-up towards concentration camps in a final solution. This term has been adopted for other rundown neighborhoods in the U.S. and other countries, where a particular racial, ethnic, or religious group is forced into due to political, economic, or social forces. So while the term ghetto is often used to describe urban neighborhoods and is sometimes used as slang for something that is dirty, cheap, worn, or run down, it's important to understand where that comes from, and it's not a laughing matter. The concentrated poverty in these neighborhoods often leads to higher crime rates, as many young people in these neighborhoods don't see as much legal opportunity for having their basic needs met, much less upward mobility. 
Many see those who work hard at low-wage jobs struggling to make ends meet without means to get ahead, and those who work hard at vice get ahead. Vice, such as drugs, sex work, illegally run clubs, illegal gambling, stuff like that that has a long history in black communities because straight ways of upward mobility were largely not open to black Americans. Also, white Americans wanted to take part in vice, but didn't want it in their clean, picket-fenced neighborhoods. So in places like Detroit, Cincinnati, Chicago, Baltimore, segregated black neighborhoods would be places where white people would head over to if they wanted to have a good time. This is still true to some extent today, especially when it comes to drugs and sex work. But with that concentrated vice in these neighborhoods came increased scrutiny by police. Racial profiling, crackdowns and raids for small offenses, and police brutality became commonplace. While neighborhoods of all kinds of racial makeups, including impoverished white areas, contend with crime and violence, the concentrated nature and heightened police presence in black communities, as well as the differences in how the justice system treats people based on race and class, even for the same crimes, leads to higher reported crime rates, arrest rates, and residents with criminal records in these communities. While statistics are important, the why, the history behind statistics are even more important, which is where understanding how these places got this reputation as crime centers came to be. Again, let us not forget that this happened and it was not organic and it didn't just so happen. It was very, very deliberate. Hot Stirrer Podcast will be back after this. We at Flying Machine love creating awesome content for you to read, watch, and listen to. At the same time, we want to see our network grow. If this is something you're inclined to do, join our Patreon. You can be a patron at the $1, $5, and our new $10 level and above, of course. At the $5 diver and above level, one of the many awesome perks is that the Flying Machine shows release a Patreon bonus episode each month. To give you an idea of what this looks like, I released an episode recently for free, which was a bonus episode originally released on our Patreon feed in March about the white moderates referred to in Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It's an episode I really enjoyed doing, so once you're done listening to this episode, check that one out. And if you'd like to learn more, or would like to be a Flying Machine patron, go to flymachine.network slash support. Now, back to Potstirer Podcast. These barriers to home ownership and the ghettoization of communities of color has had another effect. These communities are more vulnerable to the negative effects of urban renewal. Often, a key part of urban renewal is the redevelopment of land. To redevelop land, developers acquire lots, buying out the current owners. If developers can convince local governments of a public purpose of the development, the government can institute what is called eminent domain, which is a policy of seizing land from private owners for a public purpose. 
Property owners would receive what is deemed to be fair market value for the land that was seized. Eminent domain is controversial because the definition of public purpose has been stretched quite a bit, and it has benefited large-scale developers despite the public purpose language in eminent domain legislation. But whether property owners voluntarily sell their land or are bought out through eminent domain, they are usually given enough money to buy another property, whether a home or rental property, in another comparable area. Renters, especially renters in low-income areas, are particularly vulnerable. Properties in economically depressed urban neighborhoods are often occupied by renters, so the owners don't often have the same emotional stake in the neighborhood as owners who occupy their property as homeowners. Of course, they may not want to lose their properties, but as these are typically income-generating properties and not properties they have personal ties to, they are more willing to part with their properties for the right price. But in neighborhoods with mostly owner-occupied homes, such as suburbs and wealthier enclaves in cities, the resistance to redevelopment is more powerful because the residents in these neighborhoods tend to have more wealth than renters in poor areas, and they are more likely to vote, as those who are of a higher socioeconomic status are more likely than those of a lower socioeconomic status to vote. The other part of it is that renters are commonly seen as not having as much stake in the neighborhood as homeowners, which is true to some extent, especially neighborhoods with a transient population of, say, college students, or poor people who may find themselves all too often on the wrong side of an eviction notice. But in neighborhoods where renters have lived in a neighborhood for a long time, even in low-income neighborhoods, there is still a sense of community, which is lost when redevelopment occurs and renters are pushed out and, for whatever reason, are no longer able to stay in the neighborhood they once lived. And unlike the owners of low-income rental properties, residents may not have the resources to pick and choose where they'll go next once they're displaced by urban renewal. They're generally being shuffled from one depressed ghetto to another one, but without a community they've known and been accustomed to, leading to additional instability in lives that are already plagued by a level of instability. For those of you who have listened to Pastora podcasts for a long time, you might remember me briefly discussing urban renewal, and in particular, Cincinnati's raising of a black neighborhood in the 1950s to make room for Interstate 75. In episode 26, I brought up Cincinnati's West End as an additional example, besides Detroit's Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, of how the creation of interstates targeted and destroyed communities of color, particularly thriving Black communities, in the name of slum clearance and urban renewal. But Jay, that sucks for them. But this decision wasn't racist or biased. They had to knock down these areas to make way for I-75. In Cincinnati, what were they going to do? Knock down downtown? Fun fact. When I briefly talked about this initially as an aside during the Detroit episodes last year, I legit got that exact response from someone I knew that I was discussing this with. It didn't matter that this is what happened. There just had to be another explanation that was more neutral and didn't involve race or class. So I want to discuss this particular event, the destruction of Cincinnati's West End, more in depth 
because it really is an example as to how systematic housing discrimination led to poor, segregated Black communities that were vulnerable to destruction in the name of urban renewal. Prior to the Civil War, Black people were not as large a population in Cincinnati, but those who lived there generally lived alongside whites. Two mostly Black neighborhoods existed at the time, but the Black population was not relegated to these areas. But at the same time, Blacks in Cincinnati were discriminated against in other ways and were kept out of certain professions. The Black laws limited the freedoms of Black people in Cincinnati and elsewhere in Ohio, and Cincinnati was the site of a number of race riots perpetrated by white mobs targeting Black residents in the city. After the Civil War, there were fears among whites, stoked by media outlets such as the Cincinnati Inquirer, that a great Black flood would inundate the city. Their fears were realized in the form of the Great Migration. The waves of Black Americans who left the Jim Crow South for better economic opportunities in northern cities. From 1910 through 1930, the Black population of Cincinnati increased from 19,639 to 47,818. New Black residents who arrived in Cincinnati in the early 1900s were steered to the Mill Creek Basin, low-lying land near the Ohio River, particularly in and around downtown in the West End, which were areas that white residents left for higher ground. The Mill Creek Basin was on a floodplain, densely populated, and was also home to industrial plants, so residents had to contend with floods, open sewers, and thick industrial smoke. Around the same time, Cincinnati City Council focused on fostering home ownership in what they considered to be stable neighborhoods. So they created zoning regulations that by and large kept neighborhoods with owner-occupied single-family homes separate from neighborhoods with apartments and other rental units for the protection of owner-occupied residential neighborhoods, which were primarily occupied by white Cincinnatians. This, along with redlining, racially restrictive covenants, and other existing barriers at the time to Blacks becoming homeowners is what created urban Black ghettos in the Mill Creek Basin. The creation of these segregated neighborhoods was deliberate. Now, despite these neighborhoods being run down, flood-prone, and polluted, these neighborhoods were home to thriving Black businesses and vibrant Black communities. One of these communities was Kenyon Bar. Kenyon Bar was a lively West End community with a population that was mostly Black with small pockets of Jewish and European families. While the neighborhood had a lot of old, rundown apartment housing that was out of code, it also boasted of churches and Black-owned businesses such as jazz clubs, bars, and restaurants. Urban planners around the country started focusing on modernizing and revitalizing cities starting in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Fast forward after the Depression in World War II, in Cincinnati in 1948, an ambitious master plan was compiled by local planners with comprehensive plans for redevelopment, including the raising of what was considered substandard or blighted housing stock, the creation of expressways, upgrade of existing thoroughfares, public transportation, infrastructure, and much more. 
tracts of land were labeled based on the average rent charged to residents. Areas with the lowest rent were labeled blighted. So while the label, in theory, was race neutral, given the racial realities of housing I discussed earlier, was anything but. This development plan was supported by the Citizens Planning Association, which later changed its name to the Citizens Development Committee, or the CDC. The CDC was made up of business interests, such as banks, firms, and industrial corporations. The CDC was focused on the new expressway system in urban redevelopment. This redevelopment required several millions of dollars in funding, surely billions in today's dollars, which was secured by the mid-1950s. A lot of this money came from the federal government. Part of it was through the Federal Housing Act of 1949, which provided grants and loans for the purchase, clearance, and residential redevelopment of what they called blighted areas, or in other words, poor segregated minority neighborhoods. Another chunk of financing was made available due to the Dwight D. Eisenhower administration's interest in creating a national network of highways connecting much of the United States, making transportation by car more convenient than ever before. This would be called the interstate system. The Federal Highway Act of 1956, which would help pave the way for the interstate system, provided 50-50 financing along with states for interstate construction. The Mill Creek Highway, which was an expressway that was part of the 1948 master plan, would now be part of the interstate system and would be designated I-75. Local bond issues would provide additional financing. By the time financing was in place, planners were already prepared to start redevelopment through the treatment of blighted areas. In other words, the raising of poor communities to make way for redevelopment. This wasn't simply a matter of geography. This was a matter of the nature of the neighborhood and who lived there. Of the 54 project areas, four more acres of blighted areas in need of treatment, 27 were in the West End. When they pared down these sites to 10 that would certainly be targeted for redevelopment, all but one were in the West End. This redevelopment was set to displace over 50,000 residents in the West End, which was about 10% of the city's population at the time, including about 25,000 in Kenyan Bar, primarily to make room for I-75. If you're from Cincinnati, to put this in perspective, the population of Kenyan Bar alone was about the same as Oakley, High Park, and East Walnut Hills combined, according to the 2010 U.S. Census. And the question was, where were these people going to go once they lost their homes? On paper, the CDC stated that although they opposed public housing in principle, public housing should be built elsewhere in the city to accommodate displaced West End residents. These private entities did not want the lack of replacement housing to be an obstacle for redevelopment. The government was also mandated by the Federal Housing Act of 1949 to find replacement housing for displaced residents that was generally not less desirable, which was a pretty low bar, and was within their means financially. Keep in mind, this was before Section 8, so this meant that public housing would need to be built to accommodate these displaced residents most of whom would not be welcomed in other parts of the city. Remember, housing segregation. And of the places they were allowed to live, there was a shortage of available housing. Over the course of 1958, 
lots in Kenyon Bar were catalogued in pictures for what the government called slum clearance. Buried in the reports was a statement that read, quote, The area is occupied almost entirely by Negroes, end quote. There was a little thought given to the neighborhood that was being destroyed or who was being affected. Photos were taken of lots with white government officials cataloging each lot to be demolished while the black residents who would soon be displaced were out living life in the neighborhood they called home. Many of these pictures can be found online and to be honest, they're a bit unsettling, especially knowing that their lives, the lives of these people, men and women, kids, families would soon change in a profound way and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now the lots in Kenyon Bar that were set for demolition, per the reports, there were 10,295 dwelling units, 137 food stores, 118 bars and restaurants, 86 barbershops and beauty parlors, 80 churches and missions, 24 dry cleaners, and 6 funeral homes. Of 11,535 total units, only 171 were vacant lots. This wasn't simply a slum. This was a neighborhood. The West End was torn down in nearly its entirety to make way for I-75 and to attract business redevelopment in the area. While I-75 was indeed built and is heavily used today, it has become difficult over the decades to attract and retain businesses in the West End. The area was rebranded Queensgate in an attempt to make the land more marketable. There are some businesses in the area today, but it's still largely an unused swath of land. These days, Cincinnati's Major League Soccer team, FC Cincinnati, is building a new stadium in the West End, the West End site ultimately being chosen instead of nearby Oakley or Newport which are more populated neighborhoods, Oakley also being in Cincinnati, and Newport being right across the river in the state of Kentucky. Now, what happened to the people of the West End once they lost their homes in the late 1950s? Despite legal mandates that required housing be available for them, the reality was much different. Their homes and businesses were expendable in the name of progress and so were their lives. Many of them eventually settled in Avondale, Walnut Hills, Mount Auburn, and over the Rhine. But there was not enough housing stock in these neighborhoods to accommodate all the people from the West End who were displaced. And at this point, the CDC and the government didn't really care since they got what they wanted. This led to severe overcrowding in black neighborhoods and later violence and urban rioting in these neighborhoods in the 1960s. The Fair Housing Act, which was signed into law in 1968, made blockbusting, steering, redlining, and other racially discriminatory practices in housing illegal. But a lot of damage had already been done, and making these tactics illegal didn't mean that they went away completely. Within the past couple of years, Facebook has gotten in trouble for enabling redlining. And as much as Donald Trump likes to give these racist screeds against urban centers such as Chicago and Baltimore, the racial biases he and his father employed in real estate in New York and elsewhere, including Cincinnati, by the way, which caught the attention of the Fair Housing Commission in the 1970s, were part of the problem. 
Donald Trump, in his small way, helped to create the very problem he now blames blacks and other people of color for. Even to this day, Cincinnati is the fifth most segregated city in America with extreme racial disparities in wealth and income. Nearly half of all Cincinnati residents live in segregated neighborhoods. That doesn't take into account that largely based on income, white and Asian Cincinnatians tend to live in the same neighborhoods and black and Latino residents live in the same neighborhoods. When taking these clusters into account, segregation in Cincinnati is closer to 75%. More than 33% of black residents and over 30% of Latino residents live below the poverty line, compared to only 10% of white residents. Only a third of black residents in Cincinnati are homeowners, compared to nearly 75% of white residents. The median household income gap between black and white households in Cincinnati is the third largest in the country. And given the extensive history and effects of housing discrimination, this is deliberate. The story of Cincinnati's lost black neighborhoods is instructive in understanding how we got here because it's a unique event, but not a unique story. As similar events played out in cities all over the country, it's a story of how urban ghettos are created and become run down and ripe for urban renewal. Next time, we'll get more into contemporary urban renewal, including the debate between urban revitalization and gentrification, and get into what can be some ways to redevelop communities and, at the same time, provide benefits to those who have lived in these communities during the rough times. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and links to the show on a list of podcast players are posted there. If you subscribe, you can download episodes as soon as they're available. No lag time, no waiting, they're right there. Want to share your thoughts on an episode or talk about any story or issue related to politics, religion, or history? Go to the Potstar Podcast discussion group, enter it into the Facebook search bar, and click to join. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. I give you the incredible flying machine!